Well, good morning again, and good morning to those of you who are watching online. We've got another test group going today about our live stream, and that's why we have the TV up here. Uh, it's because we're trying to work out a situation where those watching online can see the PowerPoint as well. So I know you can see the big screen, but they can't. So we're seeing if, if this might work. So thank you for tuning in, those of you that are watching online, and certainly thank you for being here today as well. We're working our way, of course, through the Gospel of Luke each Sunday between now and Easter. And we've broken down the Gospel of Luke into four different series, and the very first series is a very short series called Introducing Jesus. We're looking at how the Gospel writers introduced Jesus to the world. How did God go about the task of introducing Jesus to the world? One of the ways was through the Gospels. I mean, have you ever wondered why we have four Gospels? Why are there four stories of Jesus? Why not just one? Why do we need four different stories of Jesus? Well, each Gospel writer told the story of Jesus from their perspective to a very different audience. Now, we do that all the time in today's world. We write for a particular audience. For example, how many of you watched the, uh, the college football championship this past Monday night, Alabama and Ohio State? All right, I, I, I'm surprised that it, there were that many because in the very first service I asked that question, I don't think anybody raised their hand. A bunch of clemps and sore losers that they weren't in it. so <laughs> They weren't going to watch it if they weren't in it, apparently. So, so I'm glad to see that, that you guys were watching it because it's going to help my, my illustration a little bit. I guarantee you that on the next day, Tuesday morning, I guarantee you that the headlines in Tuscaloosa, Alabama were different from the headlines in Columbus, Ohio. You see, they, they were writing to a different audience. They were writing about the same event, but they're writing to a different audience. And that's what the four Gospels are. The four Gospels are writing about the same event, the life of Jesus Christ. But they're writing to a different audience. Now that does not negate the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspired them to write the words that they wrote so that the audience they were writing to could understand who Jesus is. So what I want to do in the first part of this message is I just want to go through those Gospels real quickly and help you to see the audiences that they were writing to, and how they used their platform, their story, their biography, to introduce the world to Jesus. So, take your Bibles, let's go to the very first gospel, the gospel of Matthew. Matthew, I'm just going to summarize each gospel for us. If you're taking notes, we're going to go through that fairly quickly, but help you to understand the audience they were writing to. Matthew was one of the twelve apostles. He was one of the first followers or original followers of Jesus. Matthew wrote his story of Jesus from a first-hand experience. Matthew, as you well know, probably was a tax collector. He had a lucrative job, and one day he left it all to go follow Jesus. Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. Matthew was a Jew. He wanted the, his fellow Jews to understand that Jesus is not just a popular teacher, but that Jesus is the Messiah. And so that's the reason that he writes. And he opens his book with a genealogy because every Jew would have been interested in his heritage, his lineage. How can you prove this is Messiah? 
So Matthew opens this gospel with the genealogy and traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Abraham. We looked at this in the Christmas series, so I'm not going to go over that again. I just want to read the verses. Matthew 1.1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Skip down to verse 17. Thus there are 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, and 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ or to the Messiah. So Matthew wrote his story of Jesus from a first-hand perspective, but he's writing to a Jewish audience to help them understand Jesus is Messiah. Then we come to Mark. Go over in your Bibles, just flip through and go to the next gospel, the gospel of Mark. The gospel of Mark was written by a man named John Mark. John Mark was not one of the original followers of Jesus, but he was a friend of one of the original followers. He was a close associate to Peter who was an original follower of Jesus. And John Mark apparently was writing for the Gentiles. Now the reason we say Gentiles, by the way, Gentiles simply means non-Jews. John, uh, John Mark explains Jewish customs in his gospel. He takes the time as he's telling the story of Jesus to explain Jewish customs and holidays and that kind of thing. So he is apparently writing for Gentiles, non-Jews. And most people believe he's actually writing his story, his biography, if you will, for people who lived in and around Rome. Now, the Roman believers were people who were very interested in what someone did. They were not interested in a Jewish lineage. They wanted to know, what did he do? In fact, the Romans were more interested in what he did than they were in what he taught. And so when you read through the Gospel of Mark, you'll see an action-packed Gospel where Jesus, uh, where Mark is recording the Everything that Jesus did. Now, of course, he recorded what he was teaching as well. But Mark begins his compelling story of Jesus with what he did on his brief time here on planet Earth. And so we read Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if you skip down to verse 9, Mark doesn't have a baptism, I mean, he doesn't have a, a birth narrative or anything like that. He doesn't tell about Jesus growing up. In verse 9, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And all of a sudden, Jesus launches out into his ministry because Mark was writing to Roman people who wanted to know what did he do And so Mark tells them who Jesus was and all that he did. Then we come to the Gospel of Luke. Go with me to the right to the Gospel of Luke. Again, we talked about this last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But Luke was written by a man named Luke who was a physician, a doctor, and the companion of Paul. Luke was not one of the original followers of Jesus, but he had a a good association with Paul, likely learned about Jesus from Paul, maybe from Peter as well. And so Luke... If you remember last week, he rehearsed or researched and documented everything he could about Jesus. And he wrote down the story of Jesus for a man named Theophilus, who was a Gentile. And Luke writes his gospel for his audience to show Theophilus and everyone like him that Jesus is the Savior of everybody. And that's why in Luke's gospel, he tells a lot of stories about the outcasts and people that others would have rejected. Samaritans and and, and the 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 adulterous woman, and, and the poor, and the downcast, and all those kind of things. He's telling the story of how Jesus interacted with all of these people, how Jesus loved the sinners of the world. Because Luke wants to, everybody to understand that Jesus is the Savior of all mankind. 
And so we have these first three Gospels. So let me listen to me real quickly. I have these first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they all have kind of the same perspective. They all tell a lot of the same stories. That's why they're called synoptic Gospels. Synoptic simply means to see from the same perspective, to see the whole together. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as they tell the story of Jesus, they see the whole together. They see from the same perspective, and they report the same stories, essentially. Not all the same, but very similar stories about Jesus from the same point of view. But John, we come to the next gospel. John is very different. John takes a unique approach to the story of Jesus. John doesn't have a birth narrative like Luke does. John doesn't trace the lineage of Jesus like Matthew did. John goes far, far back, uh, far, uh, back further than, than uh, Abraham. Look what John did, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, John goes back to the beginning of everything. He said, if you want to understand who Jesus is, in order to tell you the story of Jesus, you need to go back past Abraham. You need to go back to the beginning of everything. And so in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. And verse 14, skip down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, John's gospel isn't just focused on the life of Jesus. John is going to make the case that Jesus is God in flesh. The big word for that is incarnation. That Jesus is God in flesh. So John pre presents Jesus as the very heaven-sent Son of God. The, watch this. John says Jesus is the eternal Son of God who's the only one qualified to give us eternal life. John's writing from that perspective. Now, how do you capture the life of Jesus? How do you introduce Jesus to the world? That's how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did. I've got a picture I want to show you here. It's an interesting picture because you've got this beautiful overall picture. And then you have these little frames. And they're trying to capture what they're looking at there. When I saw that picture, I thought, you know, that's a, that's a pretty good illustration of what the gospel writers were doing. They were looking at Jesus from their own perspective. Some looking this way, perhaps some looking this way, trying to explain who Jesus is. But they could never capture everything about him. The, the, the picture was just too beautiful to capture it all. But they did a wonderful job. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did a wonderful job of framing the story of Jesus for their audience. One story could never capture the complete picture of Jesus. So Matthew presents Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. Mark portrays him as the suffering Son of God who came to be a sacrifice for the sin of the world. Luke portrays Jesus as the Savior of all people, for all nations and all individuals. And then John shows that Jesus was and is the very heaven-sent Son of God, the only source of eternal life. They all were holding up their little picture frame, trying to get a picture of who Jesus is. And here's why. You know why we have four Gospels? Here's the reason we have four Gospels. Because the story of Jesus needs to be shared. That's why we have four Gospels. The story of Jesus needs to be shared. You see, the good news of Jesus Christ is only good news if it's true and if it's shared. Make sure you hear that again. 
The good news of Jesus Christ is only good news if it's true and if it's shared. And each of the four gospel writers, they knew the story was true. Because the story was true, they knew it needed to be shared. And for 2,000 years, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have been used by God to inspire millions of people, to introduce millions of people to Jesus Christ and the salvation that only He can give. And each of them has a unique thing to show us about the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. They all have their frame of reference. They all have their perspective. They wrote for their audience because the story was true and because the story needed to be shared. Speaking about a story that's true and needs to be shared in in the year 2000, do y'all, that's 21 years ago now. Do y'all remember, you remember Y2K? Man, that's 21 years ago. 21 years ago, as the world was anxiously awaiting January 1, in Sydney, Australia, Sydney, Australia took the world stage for two different events. One was welcoming the brand new millennium And the other was the Summer Olympic Games were to be held in Sydney that year. So the first event, welcoming in a brand new millennium, they had this huge celebration at the Sydney Harbor Bridge as they welcomed in the year 2000. Over a million people showed up for that ceremony, gathered to watch the celebration. The Harbor Bridge was lit up, but it was not lit up with just fireworks. It was, there were fireworks aplenty. There were fireworks everywhere over the harbor and the bridge. But it was not just lit up with the fireworks, nor was it lit up with the, with the year 2000, as you might expect. Instead, the bridge was illuminated by one word, the word eternity. Which anyone watching on television probably were scratching their heads, but those in Sydney knew exactly what that word was all about. That wasn't the only time that word would appear on that bridge. For later that year, the Summer Olympics came to town. And as they had the opening ceremonies, once again, the Sydney Harbor Bridge was the the focal point of the celebration. They had the opening ceremonies, and rather than having a fiery display of the five Olympic rings, instead, that word appeared again. The word eternity. This time, it wasn't just a million people watching from around the harbor. This time, the eyes of the entire world were watching the ceremonies. And I remember this. I remember seeing this word displayed and thinking, what does eternity have to do with the Olympics? Personally, I was glad the word was there. I just didn't understand why it was there and what it had to do with the Olympics. Well, honestly, it really doesn't have a lot to do with the Olympics. It really was Sydney's way of paying tribute to a man that they loved, a man that they called Mr. Eternity. His name is Arthur Stace. Arthur Stace was born and raised in Australia. He was born into a very bad family situation. His dad was an alcoholic. Uh, there, was, there was a lot of poverty in their family, just a very dysfunctional family. That was the family he was growing up in until he was 12 years old. Then they gave him up and he was adopted. By the age of 15, he was sent to jail for the first time. It was one of many times he spent time in jail. In his 20s, he was such a vile man and an alcoholic and a thief 
but he was such a, a vile man that he uh, was a recruiter for his sister's brothels in Sydney. He was an evil, brow, vile man who was an alcoholic, who was a thief. But all that changed on August the 6th, 1930. That was the day that 46-year-old Arthur Stace put his faith in Jesus Christ and his life was radically changed. His life was never the same after he put his faith in Christ on August the 6th, 1930. Two years later, he was sitting in church, much like you're sitting in church today, except it was a Sunday night service. He was sitting in church. He was listening to a revivalist named John Ridley. And John Ridley was preaching a sermon called Echoes in Eternity. As he was preaching this sermon called Echoes in Eternity, John Ridley's text that night was Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. And it says, For thus saith the high and the lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. John Ridley was talking about eternity, eternity, and he, he said to the audience that day, Eternity, eternity, I wish I could shout that word to everyone in Sydney and all over the streets of Sydney. As he said that, God did something in Arthur Stace's heart that night. You see, as he was walking home thinking about what that pastor said, he put his hand in his coat pocket and there was a piece of yellow chalk in his coat pocket. And he bent down and he wrote the word eternity on the sidewalk. You can see a picture of him doing that here. Now the interesting thing about this picture and about Arthur Stace writing eternity on the sidewalk is that he was basically illiterate. He couldn't even write his own name. He didn't know how to spell eternity, but he somehow was able to sit, bend down and write eternity in what they call copper plate script. He went home that night. The next morning, he woke up at four in the morning. He prayed for an hour where God might want him to write that word. He left home at five o'clock in the morning, and he went all over the streets of Sydney. Every 100 feet or so, he just wrote the word eternity on the sidewalk. He got home before it got daylight, so nobody would know who was doing it. And the next day, he did it again. And the next morning he did it again. And the next morning he did it again. And he did it for 25 years every morning at 5 o'clock. And no one knowing who was writing eternity all over the sidewalks of Sydney. No one knew. Until his pastor one day happened to turn the corner when Arthur was bent down writing the word eternity. And the pastor said, Arthur, are you the one that's been doing that? And he smiled and said, guilty as charged, Pastor. And he continued to write that word for another 10 years. Every morning at 5 o'clock, praying where he should go, every 100 feet or so, writing the name or the word eternity on the sidewalks of Sydney. The pastor thought, that's a story that needs to be told. And so he wrote an article about it, and it became a newspaper story. And the newspaper story, the headline says, Every dawn he chalks a pavement challenge. And the people of Sydney began to fall in love with him and to tell him all the ways that God had used that word to change their lives. Because as they were walking the streets of Sydney, they had to pause and they had to ponder eternity. By the way, they still remember him all these years later. Because on Friday, June the 5th, 2020, that word was written in the sky over Harbor Bridge and over the town of Sydney. People still have not forgotten the man who impacted so many. 
He apparently had this conviction that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. And if it is true, it needs to be shared. So in his own way, he found his way of sharing the story of Jesus. Because he understood the story of Jesus is life-changing. Because it had changed his life. And it's a story that needs to be shared. So here's how God introduced Jesus to the world. One of the ways is that God inspired four men to write four different stories of Jesus from their own particular perspective to a very specific audience. And when we look at those four stories, we get an idea of, of the, the amazing, amazing story we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. But God did something else as well. In addition to inspiring these four gospels, God did something else to introduce Jesus to the world. God sent a man on a mission. Much like he sent Arthur on a mission to Sydney, God sent a man named John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus Christ and to introduce him to the world. I want to real quickly tell you that story. All four gospels mention John the Baptist, by the way. All four gospels mention John the Baptist. And they do it in such a way as it is clear that this was a man sent from God to introduce Jesus to the world. Let's go back to Matthew. Let me show you what I'm talking about real quickly. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Beginning of verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is what, church? The kingdom of heaven is what? Is near. This is he who has spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. So John the Baptist says, let me tell you something. The kingdom of heaven, that which you have been waiting for, is near. It's not quite here yet, but it is near. And then John, to make his case, points to the book of Isaiah. And here's what he says. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. And here's the quote from Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John was saying, let me tell you why I'm here. Let me explain to you what I'm doing. John says, I have come to prepare the way for the Messiah, for Jesus. You need to know that in that day, if a king were to make a journey to a, different, to a distant country, that there would be people who would go ahead of him and prepare the way. They would clear the road. They would repair the road if needed. But they went ahead of the king before he came on his journey to make sure he had a clear road. They prepared the way. And in a similar way, John says, I've come for that purpose. I've come to prepare the way for the one that's coming, for the one that is near. Now let me show you again how Mark describes it. We look at Matthew, go to Mark. Mark chapter 1. It's interesting that in Mark chapter 1 verse 1 it talks about Jesus, but beginning in verse 2 it talks about John the Baptist. Look at how Mark writes. Chapter 1 verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's clearly talking about Jesus in verse 1. But in verse 2, he's talking about the one who came to prepare the way for Jesus. Look what he says in verse 2 and following. It is written in Isaiah the prophet. Mark, just like Matthew, points back to the book of Isaiah. 
It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins and were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And then skip down to verse uh, 8. John says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, verse 7. And this was his message. After me, watch this. After me, after me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. How did God introduce Jesus to the world? We have four gospel writers, but before those four gospel writers wrote down their story, God sent a man named John the Baptist. And John was sent to prepare the way to get the people ready for the Messiah that was to come. John was indeed the one announcing the arrival of Jesus to the world. Now, you know, in another month or so, I guess we're probably going to have the uh, State of the Church, not State of the Church, State of the Union, the State of the Union address. If you remember how the State of the Union addresses always began, it's, it's very, uh, very much a formal thing. The President doesn't just walk into the chambers of Congress. Before he walks in, there's a herald who walks in ahead of him. The President stays in the shadows of the doorway, and the herald comes in. He walks down the aisle, and he stands, and then he says very loudly to everyone in the chamber, Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States. And then... That dramatic moment when the president walks in and walks down the aisle. John the Baptist is the herald sent by God to say to the world, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, is about to enter our world. That was the role of John the Baptist. Now, that was Matthew, that's Mark. How did Luke do this? Luke chapter 3. I just want to show you how important John the Baptist was to the ministry of Jesus. And Luke is one of the easiest ways to see the importance of that. Um, In Luke chapter 3, Luke has all of these historical references in the first two verses. Uh, And then he says in verse 3, He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, Everybody, all their gospel writers keeps pointing back to Isaiah the prophet. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him, etc., etc. Now here's what I want you to see. If if your Bible has little headings over the chapters and in the different divisions of your Bible, I want you to see how this unfolds. Look in, if if you will, in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Just look at the headings for a moment. Luke chapter 1, verse 5, it says, the heading says, right above verse 5, the birth of John the Baptist foretold. Is that in your Bible? The birth of John the Baptist foretold. Look in chapter 1, verse 26, the heading over verse 26 is, the birth of Jesus foretold. I want you to see how these two people are intertwined, how their stories are intertwined, how important John the Baptist was to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So chapter 1, verse 5, the birth of John the Baptist foretold. Chapter 1, verse 26, the birth of Jesus foretold. Chapter 1, verse 57, the heading says, the birth of John the Baptist. Chapter 2, verse 1, the heading says, the birth of Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1, the heading says, John the Baptist prepares the way. And in chapter 3, verse 21, John the Baptist baptized Jesus as he began his ministry. So if you're God, how do you introduce people to the Lord Jesus? You have four gospel writers who present the story from their own perspective to a special audience. But you also have, before even that, you had a man named John the Baptist who was the one to prepare the way so that others could hear what Jesus was going to share. Let me share with you one other text. Go over to the Gospel of John. Let's see how John does this. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 6. There came a man who was sent from God. Notice this. There came a man who was sent from God. This is how important this man is. He didn't just show up on the scene. He was sent from God. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. So that through him all men might believe. He himself, verse 8, he himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. John's singular ministry was to testify to Jesus Christ. That's why when Jesus first entered the scene, John one day was with some people all around him. They were wanting to be baptized by him. And John saw Jesus walk up and John declared, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What does that have to do with you and what does that have to do with me? Well, here's, here's the second takeaway that I think we can learn from the lesson of John the Baptist. And that is this. Use your life to point people to Jesus. The entire life of John the Baptist was a life devoted to pointing people to Jesus. He kept saying, there is one coming. He kept pointing back to Isaiah and said, the Bible says that there is one who is to prepare the way. That's my role. That's my life, to prepare the way. And I believe that all of us really have two things in common with John the Baptist. One is, I really believe God wants to use your life and my life so that others might believe in him. God may use you to prepare the way for somebody that doesn't yet believe in Jesus. Maybe it's somebody in your family. Maybe it's somebody that you work with. But you probably know somebody and they're not convinced about all this religious stuff. They don't understand why you go to church. They don't understand why you, you're, you tithe. They don't understand why you serve so often. They don't understand God. They don't understand Jesus. And they may even have a bad connotation connected to all of those things related to God and Jesus. It may just be that they, they're just not ready yet to receive Christ. And maybe, just maybe, God's sending you as they're John the Baptist, to prepare the way so that they can believe in Jesus. Maybe, just maybe, God wants to use your life to help prepare the way so that they can put their faith in Christ. Maybe, just maybe, your life is to be used to point people to Jesus. 
But let me tell you something, and this is something you really need to focus on. If you assume the job of pointing people to Jesus, you need to recognize you're pointing away from yourself and you're pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because let me tell you something about you and let me tell you something about me. We are not the Savior. We can't change anybody's life. And sometimes we take on that responsibility. Sometimes we, we have that burden on us that he really needs to be saved and, and we put all the burden on ourselves. She really needs to give her life to the Lord and we put all the burden on ourselves as if we could be the ones to change them. John wasn't trying to change the world by pointing to himself. John was trying to change the world by pointing to Jesus because he's the only one who can change the world. You don't have to be the Savior. You just need to point to him. I was reading this week about a pastor who said that he, he will never forget something that one of his elders in his church told him right before he died. Daddy went to visit this elder. This man had served that church faithfully for 60 years. Now he's laying on his deathbed. His frail body was giving out. And as he prepared to step into eternity, he had one last thing to say to his pastor. He said, Pastor, one of my biggest regrets in life is that I cannot recall actually leading someone to faith in Jesus Christ. pastor said, my heart was grieved along with his. pastor later reflecting upon those words, I, pastor, my greatest regret in life is that I can actually recall leading someone to Jesus Christ. pastor said after he passed on and went into eternity that the pastor was reflecting on this man's life. This man had a knowledge of the scriptures. This man knew the Lord pastor figured it up and this man had likely sat in over 3,000 worship services. This man sang worship songs and he tithed and he served. But one thing was missing. He never used what he knew to bring salvation to one person. Not one. In his entire life. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here today to remind you that we have the hope of the world living inside of us if we know Christ as Savior. We have the hope of the world living inside of us. The most pressing crisis in America today is not what's happening in Washington. The most pressing crisis in America today is that people are lost without Jesus. They are prisoners to their own sin. They are searching for answers. They are lonely and they are hurting and they are confused. Some of them are angry. Some of them have been abused. Some of them are just uncertain about God. Some of them are atheists. Some of them are agnostics. And they don't know what you know. More importantly, they don't know who you know. And I'm just going to ask you in closing to help me in two ways. Let's do whatever it takes to be the kind of church that reaches out to those who are lost. you help us with that? Let's just make that part of our mission that, that we want to reach out to people who are lost. Because that's the reason the Gospels were written. That's the reason John the Baptist was sent to prepare the world so that they could hear the message, the good news that is life-changing. Let's be the kind of church that's concerned about those on the outside of the walls. Let's be the church that's focused on, on reaching people who have hopelessly lost their way. But more importantly, secondly, 
Let's be the kind of people. Let's be the kind of people who use our lives to point others to Jesus. However God wants you to do it. How could God use your life to point others to Jesus? We don't have a whole lot of sidewalks in Powdersville. That you're going to have a lot of opportunity to write eternity. Maybe you will somewhere. But we don't all have to be like Arthur Stace. But how could God use your life to point others to Jesus? Let's pray about that. Father, in the name of Jesus, in the name that is above every name, we are grateful for who you are and what you are in us. Remind us this week that we indeed have the hope of the world living in us. And may you use our lives, just like you use Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then John the Baptist. May you use our lives to introduce people to Jesus Christ. And it's in his name I pray. All God's people said...